As uh, Kenneth mentioned just now, uh, my name's Tim. I'm the pastor here at Smack One, and it's so good to see uh, new faces, uh, visitors, uh, even new friends, and the like. Uh, so like I said, I'm Tim, I'm the pastor here, and today we're going to be coming to an end of our series in Matthew. Okay, so uh, if you're new with us, just to let you know, we've been going through Matthew's uh, chapter 10 to 12 this year, and we're coming to the end of chapter 12. And next week, we'll be starting a new series in the Ten Commandments, and this will last uh, up to Easter and beyond, okay? Uh, so let's just start with a word of prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your Son, so that we may know you and that we, we may be yours. Help us, O oh Father, to hear you rightly through your word, and so that we may obey you. And we ask this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. So I'd like to start our time together by thinking this one question, which is... Wait. All, right. All right. How do habits form? How do we get to a place, for example, uh, where one has good health? Right? Habits that lead to a place of good health, for example. Is it by a momentous decision? One decision, and then you have good health. Uh, so, for example, the decision is represented by the diamond here. If, for those of you who work with programming flowcharts, you know what I'm talking about here. Uh, but yeah, is it one major decision that leads you to the outcome? Like a New Year's resolution. Uh, it's like end of February. I think most new, uh, gyms are empty again. They were crowded in the beginning of January, and now they're empty. Yeah. No, not really, isn't it? Rather, actually, habits or rather the end state is formed by multiple, multiple decisions that's, that builds upon each other, isn't it? So again, back to the example of good health. Uh, one is in a position of good health, a healthy state because of multiple decisions. Decisions to, at that one meal, not to take an extra serving. Or at that one time, uh, to, have, uh, to wake up early and exercise instead of sleep in. And many, many decisions, decisions to not eat junk food but rather have a whole meal, for example, a wholesome meal. And all those decisions add up to the point where you have good health. But the inverse is also true, isn't it? That you can have many bad choices that add up. Like you choose to eat uh, one whole cake instead of just one slice. Or you choose to you know, indulge in ice cream when you, sh you, you know you shouldn't. Or you, you sleep late at night and then you wake up terrible the next morning, then you eat to replenish it. And then you get, before you know it, you end up in a place of bad health where it's very, very difficult it's even more difficult than the, the beginning to get back to a place of good health, isn't it? Right? So decisions matter. Decisions build up. Now, what does this have to do with our passage today? Well, today we will be looking at uh, the, the, the sad and tragic case that happens when choice upon choice upon choice has been made to not believe in Jesus, to reject Jesus and his outcome. So that, that's what we'll be looking at today. This is the rough uh, structure of my message. Uh, I've titled it, the conclusion of our Matthew series, really, at the end of the day, condemned or beloved. And there's mainly two parts. The first part outlines the, the evil generation, the tragic outcome of this evil generation, and that'll be from verses 38 to 45. And the next part, uh, as we read just now, will be from verses 46 to 50 about the family of God. Evil generation and the family of God, condemned and beloved. And the main takeaway for us today, I hope, is that I hope for us to learn is that God doesn't want us to remain in condemnation, but rather He wants us to be in His beloved family. Okay, so hopefully that'll be clear as we move through the message. Now, <coughs> excuse me, 
Where were we previously in Matthew? I apologize if the font is a bit too small, but this is just really last week's passage. So if you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 12, uh, this, this is what happened last week. Last week, Jesus healed a blind and mute man by casting out the demon that was causing this affliction. Right? This was in verse 22. And Jesus was accused of doing so by the power of Satan, Beelzebul, by the religious leaders of his day. So he had harsh words to say about them. That in that act of disbelief of these Pharisees, these religious leaders, that they refuse to believe in him, the rejection is amount to, tantamount to what Jesus called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And this is unforgivable because they are attributing the acts of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, performed by the Son of God as acts of Satan himself. And such rejection cannot be forgiven. Uh, and he called them a brood of vipers, right? And this was last week. Now, in response to Jesus' very harsh like, condemnation of them, you brood of vipers, you're evil, they respond in verse 38, and that's where we begin our passage today. All right? The battery is out. Is it? Next. Yeah. Right, there we go. So in verse 38, they respond by asking Jesus for a sign. Now, as we've seen, if you look a bit, a bit earlier in, in, in chapter 12, verse 14, they already determined to kill Jesus. Okay? They are not, when they ask for a sign here, they're not asking for an opportunity to believe in Jesus. Show a sign and then we'll believe in you. No. But rather, they were, in light of Jesus' rebuke, they're saying, how dare you, Jesus, call us, the religious leaders, a brood of vipers? What authority do you have? Show us a miraculous sign that, we would, that, that you have this authority to denounce us, the chosen religious leaders of God's people. They were outraged, you see. And they were beyond the ability to be reasoned with. And we'll see this later, that they will not be satisfied with any sign, to be honest. Okay? Uh, that's why Jesus replies in the way he does in verse 39. An evil, he calls them an evil and adulterous generation. Okay? You see, he calls them evil. Okay? Because they're, they've been rejecting the clear and obvious signs that, that God has been giving them already as to who He is. We, we began chapter 11 uh, with John's disciples asking, how do we know that you're the Messiah? And He gave them signs. I've healed the blind, I've healed the deaf, I've raised the dead. And this points to Old Testament promises about who I am. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. And right in front of them, like we said just now, right in front of their eyes, Jesus cast out an evil spirit by the power of God. That, this was, that, that everyone was amazed, yes. But they refused to believe that sign. They asked for another sign instead. That they were adulterous. Why? Because they're not spiritually faithful. And this may need a bit of teasing out, you see. If you really think about it, God is not their Lord. They rejected all the ways that God has revealed Christ to them. But rather they say, I want things my way. So, and you look at it, assess it really, what, where were their hearts? Their hearts weren't submitting to God, but rather they were the masters of their own decisions. I would choose what I think is right. As opposed to what God has already revealed, you see. And Jesus calls this adulterous. That they, they want Jesus to come to them, want, them, want to meet them on their own terms as opposed to submitting rightly after the, the evidence they've seen and submitting to God. Now, we've seen also in last week that Jesus is the servant in Isaiah, the humble servant who will not shout from the rooftops. He will not draw publicity to himself, but he will heal those who are in need. He is close to the brokenhearted. The broken reed he will not break. 
That's the kind of saviour that Jesus is. So he's not about showing these signs so that people will believe in him. But he will come to save those who are in need, the weak and the vulnerable. But in that case, he still gives them a sign still. A sign of Jonah. Now maybe uh, most of you, if you grew up in church, you would have heard um, the kids' church stories of Jonah. Uh, But if you don't, uh, let me explain to you. Jonah was a prophet of Israel. He was an actual prophet who lived about 700 years before the time of Christ. Uh, he was a prophet of God, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, and he called Jonah to preach to Nineveh, this city, which is not God's people, by the way. The people who stayed in Nineveh, the Assyrians, were known for their cruelty, and eventually they will come and destroy Israel. But these evil, wicked people that don't worship God, God was calling Jonah to go, go and preach to them, and Jonah refused, so he ran away. And we know the long story that, that he ran away and God said no and he caused Jonah to be swallowed by a great fish and was spit back out on the shore instead of running away the opposite direction, go back to Nineveh and this time Jonah did and he preached and they repented. That's the story of Jonah. It's amazing. And Jesus, the fact that Jesus quotes it here means this is true, that Jesus really thinks that Jonah existed, right? And that's a sign of the prophet Jonah. So this explains the next verse. If the words on the screen is a bit too small, apologize for that. You can follow in your Bibles uh, in front of you. Verse 40. So what's the sign of Jonah? So Jonah was swallowed by the great fish for three days, three nights, and then he was spit back out. Jesus will be in the heart of the earth. He'll be buried for three days and three nights, and then he will come out of the grave. He, He will rise again. Jesus was referring to his resurrection, and we know this with hindsight. This is referring to Jesus' resurrection, that Jesus raising from the dead, sorry, Verse 40. What's going on here? Yeah, okay. That Jesus knows that his, uh, that his sign, his resurrection, okay, that he will rise from the dead and prove that he is the promised Messiah. But again, also with hindsight, we know that when Jesus eventually did, he died on the cross, he was buried. Three days later, he walked out of that grave. The grave was empty. But even then, the religious leaders refused to believe still. Okay, and it just proved the hardened hearts. And that's why uh, Jesus explains that they won't believe. They've rejected me completely. And this is seen in verse 41 and 42. So first, two examples. The first was the men of Nineveh themselves. Like I said, they repented at Jonah's preaching, right? Now, you see, why are they more guilty? Because the men of Nineveh, they were given a reluctant prophet. Okay? Who, uh, but rather Jesus, for the Pharisees, Jesus is a willing saviour who has come down to them. Jonah ran the opposite direction to where he was supposed to go. But Jesus came from heaven to earth to save us. Jonah, Jonah's story, if you're not aware of it, was about how God's compassion is shown even to uh, an unbelieving nation who did not know him, that he would still desire they repent, God's compassion. But Jesus, in his saving those who are God's enemies by dying for them, demonstrated God's love for all of sinful humanity. Jesus is far greater. Thus, the rejection of Jesus when Jesus has come is a far greater offence than the men of Nineveh because the men of Nineveh actually repented at the preaching of Jonah. And the same goes in the next verse as well, in verse 42. The queen of the south, as we read just now in 2 Chronicles, the queen of Sheba, uh, what we know as today modern-day Ethiopia, 
if you're a bit poor in geography, don't worry. Uh, Africa is south of Israel. They're actual places right now, right? And it's about 2,000 kilometers. It's longer than the drive from Singapore to Bangkok, for those of us in this context. Lah, huh? that the queen, she traveled that distance because she heard of a rumor of a king who is wise. But behold, one is greater. That she had to travel far because she, she, she wanted God's wisdom. But here, Jesus, Jesus is amongst them. They don't have to travel far to hear him. He's there with them. And the queen of Sheba traveled to listen to a humanly wise king. Granted, he was very wise, yes. But there in front of the Pharisees was Jesus, the wisdom of God personified. And not just his teachings of wisdom, but his acts of compassion, that he showed the very wisdom and kindness and love of God. That they have a greater evidence to believe, and yet they didn't. So their condemnation is illustrated in the following parable. Okay? So there are, there are some things for us. I'll draw that at the end of this section. Okay? So going to verse 43. Now, from verse 43 to 45, um, it's uh, one parable itself. This is a parable of the exercised person, likely because in, in the context of what they immediately witnessed, Jesus threw out that evil spirit of the blind and the mute in front of them. Okay? And, and Jesus is kind of ex- using this to illustrate behind the scenes what happened. Now, this is a very enigmatic, very mysterious parable that talks about demons and exorcisms, and there's a lot of questions about this. Uh, if you have questions, yeah, you feel free to use the link up there. But let's not get distracted by the mystery and the enigma here because this parable is really about the dangers of remaining neutral or uncommitted when it comes to Jesus. Okay, That's what this parable is about. How so? Let me show you. So let's look at the parable bit by bit. The first thing, what happens? The spirit is cast out. The evil spirit is cast out. That this is an initial work of God. That all of us will agree, uh, even those present at Jesus' time would agree this was good. The evil spirit that was possessing, taking control over this human, that the human doesn't have any agency, this evil spirit was driven out, kicked out. There's an initial act, and everyone agreed this is good. But then what happens behind the scenes? We don't see this. The spirit wanders, find rest, can't find rest, and goes back to his house, which is actually the person that he, he was possessing, isn't it? And upon return, we see the house empty, swept, and ordered. So no one is denying that some good has been done. It was put in order, it was swept clean. But the most important part here is that it is empty. The house remains unoccupied. There is no master of the house. Jesus is not the Lord of that house. The Holy Spirit is not present in that house. That house is empty. There may have been some initial signs of cleansing, of of orderliness, in the sense of amazement, the right response to Jesus. Wow, he is really something. But there was no further steps. There was no steps to to believe in Jesus. There was no steps to, to make Christ as Lord of that house. So the house is empty. So what happens? The evil spirit goes out, brings seven other evil spirits, more evil than itself, and goes in. And the last state, this is the thing, right? This is the conclusion. The last state of this man is worse than the first. And so it will be with this evil's generation. The people that Jesus was speaking to have witnessed his signs. They were amazed at it. They have that initial 
response to Jesus' ministry, but they've stopped short of trusting Jesus, believing in Him, that He is the Christ, He is the Saviour, He is the Lord. And therefore, in their rejection of Jesus, they end up in a state that is worse than if Jesus didn't come in the first place because their condemnation is eternal. And this brings us to our first principle, okay? that the unrepentant who ignore God are eternally condemned. Now, friends, I don't, it, it gives me no pleasure in saying this, but we, by default, we belong to this evil and adulterous generation. By default. Because none of us starts off wanting to obey God. None of us willingly wants to honour God and love Him. That all of us here, myself included, we're all guilty of not treating God as God, as His majesty deserves. Ignoring Him at best. Or sometimes trying to make God our genie. God, I want this. Can you make this possible for me? And that's the, the, the sum total of our relationship with God. And we are more culpable than Jesus' generation, than His hearers, because we have before us, in hindsight, the evidence of Jesus' resurrection. Now, um, this is not the, the, the point of my sermon. Uh, there's a lot here if I want to say about it, but let me just briefly recap. Because Jesus' resurrection is the cornerstone of all of Christianity. Christianity is one of the few religions that can be falsified, can be proven false, if the resurrection is not true. So people have tried to attack it, tried to, uh, you know, poke at it, but the evidence remains that Jesus was executed on a Roman cross. Okay, there's uh, multiple historical sources. This is not doubted in history that Jesus was crucified 2,000 years ago in a place uh, called Judea on a cross. Not disputed. That Jesus was buried. That his tomb, the place of his burial, was known. It was attested that the current site of that burial, that tomb, is now a church, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And there's an unbroken chain of like, tradition that links that 2,000 years that that is where Jesus was buried. It's known. And the fact is that Jesus didn't stay dead, but that he rose again, that three days later, he appeared before his disciples, and that they saw this message, they went out to preach this message, and they died for that message. And this is not like those martyrs who blow themselves up because they were told something. These men died for saying what they saw. They saw Christ risen and they died for that. There's evidential proof of that. And that proof, that evidence, has stood the test of time for over 2,000 years, that there's no better uh, explanation of the facts, that these men were transformed and brought this message out far and wide, other than the fact that Jesus really did rise again three days later. And that's what we believe truly happened. Now, why does that matter? Because if Jesus truly did rise from the dead, it means Jesus is who he says he is. And that's what we've been looking at throughout the whole of our time in Matthew, isn't it? He is the Christ. He is the eternal Son of God who entered into humanity, born of a virgin. That he is the promised Savior. Like I said, promised in the Old Testament. That he was promised hundreds and hundreds of years before by ancient prophets. That he is the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord. If he is who he says he is, then there is no neutrality. You cannot be in the middle when it comes to him. You cannot admire him and not have him as your Lord. As C.S. Lewis said, you, because Christ claimed to be God, he's either a liar or he's mad 
or he is who he says he is and that he is Lord. Now, what does it mean for us? Some of us, if you're walking through here, you're new to us, Christ is not your Lord and you're deciding, well, you have a decision to make. And maybe this is not something to be made lightly. You want to have conversations about what are we talking about here. Welcome. Please, uh, we, we love to chat with you more about what we believe because this is the most important news ever. But for those of us who maybe have, have acknowledged Christ as Lord, but, you know, life gets in the way. Some things, you know, come in. And here, I'm reminded of a quote from Hudson Taylor in that Christ is either Lord of all or He is not Lord at all. Who Christ is demands our all. He needs to be Lord over our lives, our jobs, whatever happens to us on Monday to Saturday, and not just on a Sunday morning. So don't make that mistake of thinking that you can come to church, be present, sing the songs, feel good about yourself, and go back and live as you want. Because Christ doesn't allow that. He, he, he is your Lord. God doesn't want us to remain in condemnation far from Him. But He wants us to be His family, to belong to Him. That's what God wants for us. Now, how do we become His family? And that's what we see next in the next uh, section of today's message. All right? And we have this passage here, verse 46 to 50. While He was still speaking to the people, behold, His mother and brothers were standing outside, asking to speak to Him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. Now this last bit here is a bit confusing for some people. But let me, be, let me clarify that Jesus is not dismissing or belittling the importance of biological relations. Okay? Um, yeah, my own mother is uh, here in the audience, so yes. Right? <laughs> Jesus is not dismissing family relations, no. But he is stating that the nature, the true nature of God's family goes beyond that. It's transcendent. It's greater than that. Okay? Now, this is made clear by the fact that Jesus' very own blood kin, his mother and his brothers, were outside. They weren't listening to Jesus' teachings. They were outside. They, were, they didn't believe who Jesus was. Not yet. We know, not until he rose again did they believe. Okay? But they were outside but rather, who were God's family? Those who were with him, who, who, did, uh, who were doing the Father's will. You see, beyond the grave, after we die, it will not matter who was your father, or who was your mother, or who you knew, or who you rubbed shoulders with. It doesn't matter if your father was the, your family, you came from a family of people who rejected and hated God. And then it doesn't, equally doesn't matter if you came from a family of like, oh, I've come from seven generations of pastors, for example. No, it doesn't matter. What is equal? God's family is only based on, is he your father? Are you God's child? And that's it. Like the famous uh, saying goes like, there is no God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has children. We all have a direct relationship with God as father. Now, how do we become God's family? How do we have God, the creator of the universe, as our father? Simple. Is by doing the Father's will. Not by any earthly standards. Again, like I said, not by earthly status, but by simply doing all. Anyone who does the Father's will can be a, a member of God's family. Now, what do we mean by the Father's will? 
So Jesus doesn't explain in this passage. But in other parts of the gospel, if you look at it clearly, again and again, Jesus used Father's will to, to, to describe what's expected of us to believe in him, right? That on the, and one clear example is on the Mount of Transfiguration later on in Matthew chapter 17. Jesus speaking, showing, he showed his glory before his closest disciples, and then the Father's voice spoke. This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Believe in him. So the Father's will, simply put, is for us to believe in his Son. Now, and this leads to our last principle, which is, all who do the Father's will belong in God's family. You see, how does this make sense? There's only one person who has perfectly obeyed the Father, who, have, who has perfectly pleased God the Father. Okay? Not any of us here, because all of us, like I said, we have not wanted naturally to obey and honour God. Only one person has done so. And only one person with whom the Father pours out His unlimited, infinite love. And that person is Jesus. Okay? That person is the Son of God Himself. Now, by believing in the Son, by believing in Christ, we are united with Him. Okay? That he, he entered into our humanity and by believing in Him, we are united with Him. So much so that when He died on the cross, He took all the condemnation that our sins so deserved. He took our shame. He took our, the, 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 the full consequences of our sin, our death, and bore, bore it on the cross on His death, fully paid for so that we would not have to bear our shame, the condemnation of our sin and our failures ever again, because Jesus took it all on the cross and done with it there. And in exchange, because we're united with Him, we get His status as a son of God. So too we become sons. We become co-heirs with Christ. And as Christ is the beloved of the Father, so too are we who believe in Him that the Father will call us beloved, not because we're awesome, but because Christ is that beloved. And that same love with Christ, which the Father loved Christ, He will love us who believe in Him. As Christ was holy and perfect before God, so too are we who believe in Him as we stand before the Father. According to Calvin, he says, this is the design of the gospel, that Christ may become ours so that we may be ingrafted into his body. Again, I, I, I repeat, God doesn't want us to remain in condemnation. He doesn't want us to stay in that default where we find ourselves in. He wants us to belong in his family. He's made possible for us to belong in his family by believing in Christ. You see, one day, all of us, great or small, young or old, we will be standing before God who made us. When we die, it doesn't matter who you are, what background, what God you believed in, the truth remains the same. There's just one God who made everything. And that's who we will stand before the judgment after we die. We, he has made us and we have to give an account of our lives before Him. There's nowhere to hide before Him because He made everything. He knows everyone. And we either stand condemned in our own sin. So if, if, if for some of you, you've yet to make that decision, maybe you've come and you, we've been welcoming, that's great, awesome. I'm so glad that you're here with us and we hope that you continue to be with us. We love having you here. Don't, 
don't hear otherwise, okay? But if you have not yet made that decision, you've been liking the, the, the community, but you have not made that decision, please don't delay. Because every decision that you say maybe later makes it easier for the next time to say maybe later and makes it harder for you to truly believe in Christ when push comes to shove, when things get difficult, that you won't make that choice to believe in Him. Or maybe perhaps for some of us, if we only allow Christ to have a partial reign over our life, each time that we deny Him, Lordship over an area of our life, our finances, our media time, as I've said before, each time we deny Him Lordship over those areas, we make it easier to deny Him in the next time. And we make it more difficult to truly own Him as Lord of all our lives as He should be. That making choice after choice to deny Jesus His Lordship that He needs is as dangerous as leaving our house vacant and the end won't be pleasant. And that is standing before Christ still in our condemnation because he, he is not your Lord. But we can stand before God in Christ, believing in Him, and then we stand before God as beloved. Now, we look at people of great faith. Maybe that's that category of people who are beloved. We look at uh, Andrew or look at someone who, with great faith. Wow, that's amazing. And I look at myself and I said, what's wrong with me? Why do I still struggle with this sin? Am I truly here? Maybe I'm somewhere here, you know? What, what if my faith never measures up? This is, I, I cannot be that level of holiness that God demands. I cannot make, it's so difficult to make Christ as Lord each and every moment. It's so hard. And again, here the, the assurance, it is not about one big decision, but many, many small decisions. So start small. Start with first and foremost, believe that Christ has died for you that His death on the cross is enough to forgive you and your sins. To know that if you believe in Him, that that was for you, that you are now a child of God. And thus you live like it. You choose to value the things of God. You begin, yes, of course, personally that means you, you begin to read the Bible, you begin to pray, because those things allow you to know God who loves you and know you better. But if you rely on self to do these things, you won't get very far. So the next step of small decisions is about surrounding yourself with brothers and sisters who will love you, who love Christ, and who will push you to Christ. To gather together, to be praying with one another. If you can, if you can make it, find a growth group together to, to surround yourself with God's Word together. Okay? And, and, and if you can, find out what it means to be loving God's church, His people. By by volunteering to serve, by being here, by having conversations with new faces and, and loving them. Because that's how we get to be faithful to God. Choice by choice, we make it. And eventually, we'll be a place where we're more like Christ. But I want to make one last note in that. This will not be done by our own effort. The Bible says that, you know what? The, the beauty of the promise of, of being in Christ is that we're not left to our own means, our own strength to muscle our way through this. It will be impossible. But He has given us His Spirit. He has given us His grace to enable us. So when we feel weak, when we feel that we can't do it, when that night just work just was so stressful and you don't want to go to Gigi, you can pray and ask God for the strength, for His grace to enable you to do what you know you should be doing. And that's the beauty of being in God's family. So what choice 
remains for us today. What choice will you make? Start small. Start where you are. And each choice that you make to choose to get more of God will be a choice that will be rewarded in eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us to our own condemnation. You have not left us to our own devices. But you have reached out to us. That you have came down to us. You sent your son to us, O oh Lord. That you reached out to save us by, by, by planning for your son to die on the cross on our behalf. If any of us here are present who have yet to own you as Lord, own Christ and believe in Christ of what he has done for us, I pray and ask, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself. Help them to know that you love them and that you desire them to be your, your sons. And help us, O oh Lord, for those of us who have chosen to believe, to be continually choosing what we know to draw us to you as opposed to be distracted and choosing the things that would take your presence and your awareness of you away from us, O oh Lord. And we can only do so by your grace. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.